Welcome to Holding the Fire, Indigenous Voices on the Great Unraveling. I am your host, Dar Jamail. Given the scope of the crisis upon us, have you ever felt a yearning to learn more about living in a culture that is not based on extractivism, commodification, acquisition, and exploitation? It is plain to see at this point that the dominant culture on the planet is pushing us towards the ruin of all living beings. There has to be another way, a better way. It was this question that led me to Galina Angarova from the Lake Bacall region of Siberia. In addition to being the Executive Director of Cultural Survival, an Indigenous-led NGO that advocates for the rights of Indigenous peoples around the world, Galena is a climate activist and a land rights activist. Understanding the human condition, understanding suffering, knowing our place on this beautiful and fragile planet, having our hearts broken, hurting, grieving, healing, and always, always having hope that we can overcome and thrive. It's all of it. This is why we're here. How can I be the best version of myself, given the story I was born with and lived, and what can I do with it? It's living the best way that I can, allowing life to happen to me, guided by my heart, caring for others, leaving behind something important, after I'm long gone, and that's how I try to live those values that came from my ancestors and my grandmother. And that's what the land has been teaching us all along. Prior to her current position with cultural survival, Galena served as a representative of the Indigenous Peoples Major Group at the United Nations. She was also the Russian Program Director at Pacific Environment where she organized direct actions against large resource extraction projects in Siberia and the Russian Far East. In our conversation, Galena talks about what it was like being raised in an intact indigenous culture and the values instilled in her from that time. She discusses the critically important role of ancestors, the effects of intergenerational trauma, and the critically important role of indigenous women during this time of crisis on planet Earth. Galena believes indigenizing is the antidote to colonization and that the traditional knowledge of indigenous people that came directly from the land itself is our only hope for a future. Welcome to the podcast. Hold that spirit. Hold that spirit close. Galena, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for the invitation and for the opportunity. You had an exceptional experience having grown up steeped in your indigenous culture. Would you please begin by sharing some of your memories growing up with your grandmother and other family members and relatives and talk about some of the values that were instilled within you during that experience? Mm. I want to start with my name. My name is Galina Angarova, and I come from the Abzai clan of the Herod Nation of Buryat peoples. We're the largest indigenous group in Siberia on both sides of Lake Baikal, 
And you might have heard about this lake. It's the largest freshwater lake in the world, which contains 20% of the world's freshwater. I identify myself as an indigenous woman, a daughter of my people, and then as an indigenous rights activist, as a climate activist, land rights activist, and I serve as the executive director at uh, Cultural Survival. I also serve as the co-chair of the coalition called Search Coalition. It's a coalition that secures, works to secure the rights of indigenous peoples in a green economy. And I'm also on the board of a growing culture. To answer your question, I would begin with a story of how I grew up. I grew up with my grandmother in a village of about 400 people, most of whom were my relatives, both close and distant. My grandmother's name was Yekaterina, and her native name was Dulma. She had such an acute sense of justice and uh, also love for my people and for her land. And it's because of my grandmother I am who I am today. My first vivid and impactful memories were of my grandmother taking me on a horse cart to our sacred place outside of our village to the sacred ceremony. I remember all of the women and elders of my extended family in prayer, celebration, dancing, and singing following our ceremony. My first understanding of my culture was witnessing my grandmother who would wake up in the morning and predict the weather for the day. She would know what the harvest was going to be like in the spring, which is way before the time for the harvest itself in the fall. And she knew so many things that are hidden from the regular eye because she was of our land and of our culture. As kids living in our community, we used to play throughout the village, in the river, in the nearby groves. And my grandmother's house was on the far end of the village, and it was quite a distance to the farthest house on the other side of the village. And we children, a dozen of us, um, all cousins and all extended family, would play and run throughout the village. We never knew where we would end up at any given time. But what we knew was that we were always, always watched after, uh, kept an eye on by every grandmother in the village. During lunchtime, we would be invited and herded by one of the grandmothers to her house and eat and get nourished. And everyone in the village knew that we were safe and fed and taken care of throughout the day. So through these acts of kindness towards each other, we learned gratitude, we learned reciprocity, the importance of relationships, trust, and responsibility. Another example or a story that I would like to share is that when my grandmother had an excess of milk, sour cream, farmer's cheese, butter, she would always share that with other families. And in return, other families would share their excess of wild strawberries, blueberries, mushrooms, and meat. And that's what reciprocity means for us with my people. Up until 60s and 70s during the Soviet Union, money in my community didn't play a significant role. As uh, most of the food that we had 
came from our land through hunting and fishing, gathering, growing. And we practiced the so-called gift economy. What was important about that, that it was the gratitude that was our main currency. We understood that gratitude does not come alone and that it came with blessings. When my mother's generation started moving out of the community to obtain higher education, degrees and positions and seek employment in the city, so the money started flowing into our community and it started changing the dynamics. People started withholding their gifts. We experienced less sharing and gifting. And at the same time, we saw the rise in alcoholism and related illnesses. We experienced the replacement of the gift economy with the money economy, as well as the diminishment of gratitude and blessings. So, I, I want to give a quote of uh, one of my favorite writers, indigenous scholars, Robin Wall Kimmerer, who in her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, said that she spoke of gratitude and the ability to feel gratitude on the emotional level as a gift from the creator to human beings. As Mother Earth blesses us with her gifts in forms of fruits, vegetables, and whatnot, one of the ways that humans can reciprocate is in the form of gratitude. And as I said, it comes with blessings. And this is how we continue to stay in this reciprocal relationship with the Mother Earth, which is in our mind as the mother of all mothers. And this way we continue the cycle of gratitude and blessings and then blessings and gratitude and the cycle goes on. And unfortunately, the cycle is being broken. The money has become the main conduit for exchange. And with that, some most important relational aspects are being excluded. Gratitude becomes the evolutionary holdover. And relationships and exchange become transactional. Whereas gifts come from the place of abundance, the concept of scarcity is embedded in the economic systems that we currently have. This transition that happened in my community had a profound impact on my people and manifested in declining well-being, alcoholism, diabetes, heart conditions, and so on. I think that money itself is a phenomenon. It's not a problem. I think the way we treat and relate to money is a problem. I think that every individual needs to examine their relationship and perception of money. I think, again, I want to repeat that in the current economic system, the money is important and it is one of the forms of energy, not a, the only form of energy. It's a concentrated form that is rooted very much rooted in its physical expression and representation. There are many other forms of energy, such as the expression of solidarity, mutual support, heartfelt advice, connecting people, 
sharing and exchanging resources, participation in strategy, and participation in celebration. In my mind, they all go back and take root in just one place, and that place is called love. I mean the bigger concept of love, not just romantic love. It is the kind of love that keeps our cells in our bodies sticking together and forming a human being. Every mother on the planet, including humans and other non-human kin, all giving, all forgiving, all encompassing kind of love. That's what I mean by love. I come from a society where love is expressed through love to not only your partners, to your immediate family, to your children, but love is expressed to other non-human family members, and uh, such as the river that flew nearby my grandmother's house or the small hill that as we as children would climb up and down and go down every day playing in the fields and on the hill and throwing rocks in the rivers. And these are just the very basic expressions of love to your place. I also wanted to share that I'm originally from... Uh, what is known as a matrilineal society. And since you've asked me to share the stories from uh, my childhood, I would say that as a child, I've benefited immensely from the knowledge and the love and the kindness of our grandmothers. And our grandmothers in my community have always been incredibly important and powerful. And they were ultimately the ones who were making the decisions for the entire community. I think the most important role that grandmothers play in a culture is seeding their wisdom in younger generations. Grandmothers spend time with their grandchildren, I think everywhere, not just indigenous communities. They spend time with their grandchildren, telling them stories throughout the day, mostly before bedtime. And those moments before bedtime are absolutely sacred. This is where the magic of so-called intergenerational knowledge transfer is in full force, patiently weaving its way to pass our traditional knowledge and language to the younger generation. Some of the most important stories are about our ancestors. Every clan ceremony is a prayer and an offering to them. I remember stories about our grandmothers, the guardians of my clan who lived many generations ago. Their names are always mentioned in our traditional ceremonies. If I can share one of the stories that my grandmother shared with me when she was alive was uh, a story about my ancestor. Her name was Abzai Tode, Grandmother Abzai, who lived many generations ago and became the matriarch of my clan. Originally, we belonged to the Shono, or wolf clan, and Abzai was a beautiful, hardworking, and kind-hearted young woman. She met and married a young hunter named Naita, and together they created a big family of nine boys and adopted an orphan as their tenth son. When Abzai was pregnant with her youngest son, Naita died during a hunting accident. The family was thrown into hardship and hunger. 
Having lost their hunting rights and quota with Naita's death, Abzai and her young sons fished in the river to survive. And today, this is why when members of my clan conduct our ceremonies, we serve fish along with mutton, along with meat, as our main offering to our ancestors. Despite all the difficulties and hardships raising her sons as a single mother, Abzai's son grew up to become good men and build families of their own. And to honor her great sacrifice, Abzai's descendants gave our clan her name. So that's what just wanted to emphasize the role of women in my society and in my community. That the clan that I belong to today is named after a female ancestor who has done tremendous contributions to our clan. And I'm here because of my ancestors, because of my Abzetode, because despite all the hardships and trauma of colonization, my ancestors endured and they made sure that we, their descendants, came to life. And uh, if I can talk a little bit about the trauma of colonization. Please. A lot of us indigenous people carry that intergenerational trauma. I know that in the 19th century, my people lost hundreds of shamans to the Stalin regime. Many were shot at sight and others were sent to perish in gulags. None of this trauma has been addressed and healed. And we, the descendants of these knowledge holders, we still carry this unresolved trauma to this day. I'm someone who has been double colonized, first by the Russian educational system and later by the American educational system. And it's taken me a lifetime to rebuild those neuropaths and original ways of being of my ancestors. We hear a lot about decolonizing, decolonizing diets, decolonizing education, decolonizing our workspaces and so on. But indigenizes is as important as the colonizing. And it needs to happen so that we can collectively address our trauma. Decolonizing and indigenizing are not synonymous, but both are important, complementary processes. Decolonizing focuses on unwiring, unlearning, colonial, extractive, and exploitative attributes that interfere with equity, justice, and balance in relationships in our environments. Indigenizing replaces or rather returns us to our original ways of being and knowing, which supports reciprocal relationships between people and place. So this unwiring, which is decolonization, and rewiring, which is indigenization, so this unwiring and rewiring of our brain's neuropaths is a process that is reflected in our neuropaths in the brain. And the transition from one to the next takes time, practice, and patience to achieve this transformation. 
And this transition is always reflected in a shift in values, in practices, and it is manifested in how we relate to the world around us. For example, it took me years to relearn, understand the concepts, and speak my native language again. And our languages are the gateways to understanding our cultures. In my native language, there's no such a word as environment. For example, we have the word battle, which means state of being, state of self, and the environment, the environment around us. It signifies unity and non-separation between a human and their environment. So there you go, the mindset, the attitudes and behaviors towards self and environment as inseparable, as interdependent, based on the concept of non-duality and complementarity. And this is just one example of the multitude of indigenous worldviews, ways of being, knowing, and learning. So to sum it up, The answer to this question, I would say that my grandmother was an incredible force of knowledge, source of knowledge, inspiration, kindness, and love, and the most important bits of wisdom that I learned from my time growing up with my grandmother were the ones I've just told about. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. I feel very lucky uh, getting to hear that. And One of the guiding questions of the podcast is, what do you see happening on Earth today? And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that, contrasted with so much of what you just shared with us from those places that you just spoke to and from when you look out at the world today. What do you see happening? Yes, there's a lot of things happening on on the planet today. There's climate change, there's biodiversity loss, there's um, increased numbers of human rights defenders killed. It's incredibly daunting sometimes to even think that um, as a humanity we're facing the polar crisis and trying to find the solutions. What I wanted to address today was um, two things. Two things that I think that uh, is coming up for Indigenous peoples that I really wanted to highlight in this podcast. So there's a new phrase out there, the just transition, right? Transition to a green economy. Mm -hmm. Hundreds of years of polluting the earth, torturing our mother earth with the rise of greenhouses, gases is just taking its toll. The current economic models are threatening the survival of the human species and other species on this planet. And now the same supporters of the current system want us to believe that the poison is also the cure, that extractivism is going to save the world from collapsing. And that's why we see a new wave of extractivism in indigenous territories as there is a rush to mine transition minerals, or they call them critical minerals, or rare earth minerals for the so-called green economy. So solar panels, batteries, electric mobility, electric cars. But we need to ask ourselves, who is this transition for? According to the recent data, over 
54% of transition minerals globally. And these are cobalt, copper, lithium, nickel, and 30-some other minerals. And these minerals are located on or near indigenous people's lands. It's certainly not a transition for indigenous peoples and other marginalized communities. The dominant narrative, as told by mining corporations and electric car companies, suggests that increased mining is essential for the green transition and will lead to a just transition for all. However, this narrative fails to address the environmental and human rights concerns associated with traditional mining practices. There's still open pit mining, there's still unsustainable use of water associated with mining. So a trusted elder once told me, pay attention to the intention. There are many big, shiny and new things, but most of them are just reinventions of the same old. So the same old is the centuries-old mindset, paradigm, and intention to extract and exploit. It can come in shiny packages, but the core of it is remaining the same. The core of it is extractive. In many indigenous cultures, we're taught from childhood that we can take only what we need, leave something behind so it can regenerate itself and to think seven generations ahead. In many indigenous worldviews, regeneration, sharing, and giving back are at the core of harmonious and true sustainable living. The second thing I would like to mention here are the efforts to commodify the earth, which is connected to what I've mentioned before. Corporations and governments want us to believe that everything that inhabits and roams the earth has a monetary value. So this mindset is what has pushed humanity to this point, right? And we're hearing more and more about these carbon credit schemes, biodiversity credit schemes, and we absolutely need to stop monetizing everything and shift from extractive to regenerative practices and mindset. We have witnessed, experienced the failure of the carbon credit schemes and have actually only led to more emissions. Nature or biodiversity loss is overwhelmingly driven by decisions made in corporate boardrooms, by stock markets, and we should therefore challenge these institutions, their supply chains, and abolish harmful subsidies that advance our landscapes into biodiversity ruins. In my culture, we consider our rivers, springs, and mountains as holy and untouchable. Why can't we declare our sacred places as no-go zones? And these places cannot be monetized and commodified. This way, we have to focus on another way of living, the regenerative kind of living and being. We need systems change where the highest value is not monetary profit, but our collective well-being as both human and other-than-human relatives. You have spoken about how you feel the land right away each time you return to your home village and how the land literally informs your people. If you would please uh, share a little bit about that with us. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for this question. And I would start again with a quote by my favorite writer, another elder, 
important elder living in these times, Robin Walkimer, who wrote in her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, to be native to a place, we must learn to speak its language, to turn off the voices in your heads, our heads, until we can hear the voices outside it. So when I'm on my traditional land, the moment I arrive, the communication is almost instant. I can hear her. I can feel her. It cannot be expressed in words. When the connection is so strong, all you can do is to feel connected, to feel love and be loved and wanting to protect her. The ability to listen and hear the voice of the land of Mother Earth is the manifestation of indigenous ways of being, knowing, and learning. And these ways come from thousands of years of experience that indigenous peoples have inherited from their ancestors. And this experience is known as our traditional knowledge. So traditional knowledge is a result of this symbiotic relationship between the land and its people. My grandmother knew the weather of the day, what the harvest was going to be like, way in advance of the harvest itself. And I've mentioned that. So I want to reiterate that, that she knew the land like she knew herself. She was the land, and the land was her. The land and I share the DNA. We carry the microbiome of the land that we live on. And like my grandmother, I believe that I am the land and the land is me. So the same way you are the land and the listeners who are tuning into this podcast are the land and the land is them. That intimate relationship to your land and your environment is the basis of the indigenous worldview, which in turn provides us with a set of instructions. We call them the original instructions of our land. These are the set of values and principles inherent to this worldview, and these are gratitude, reciprocity, prosperity, equity, humility, trust, relationships, and respect. Our values have been passed down from our ancestors and elders, from the knowledge that can only come from the direct interaction of people and place. And speaking of gratitude, in indigenous cultures, the practice of gratitude extends beyond the human to our other-than-human family and relations. Our Mother Earth gives us everything that we need to live on this planet. And in return, many native peoples across the world, despite distances and cultural differences, have in common expressing gratitude through ritual and ceremony to plants, trees, animals, rocks, for their beautiful and useful gifts to us, and the promise and conviction to protect, nurture, and respect those gifts. I recall visiting the Andes in Peru, some of the communities in the Sacred Valley. They're growing their native varieties of potatoes in unimaginable conditions, in high altitudes. And these are some of the most delicious and nutritious potatoes in the world. I was visiting the seed bank in El Parque de la Papa, or the Potato Park, and I was stunned 
to see thousands of native varieties of indigenous potatoes that communities have preserved since the times immemorial. I also had a privilege to witness the ceremony, thanking the spirit of potato for returning to their land and praying for it to come back next year. And then I also talked to communities in the Pacific Northwest who performed their ceremonies to thank the spirit of salmon and to pray for it to return to their rivers and land. In many other indigenous communities, we have different ways of expressing gratitude through ceremony for the spirits of our other-than-human family to come back to our land, to come back to our people and praying for them to return. So I talked about the salmon and with the communities in the Pacific Northwest. Salmon, it's not just a keystone species as some environmental and conservation specialists would refer to. Salmon becomes an important emotional and spiritual entity that is inseparable from their lives, from their relationship to the land. It becomes a family member. So all that to say is that indigenous peoples learn from the land to reciprocate when we tend to the land and she gives us back her gratitude in the form of harvest. We take only what we need and then we give back to the life force that nourishes us. And this translates to prosperity and abundance. Also want to give another example speaking to prosperity and abundance. Two years ago, I was in Southern Oregon with my family. And one of the things that we did was picking berries, just just the way we used to pick berries with my grandmother and my mom in my village. And the lush forests of the Pacific Northwest are rich. And in one time, I counted seven kinds of edible berries. In my culture, sweet berries signify harvest and abundance. And I was on a call with my mom, telling her all about how I encountered wild strawberries, blackberries, blackcurrants, thimbleberries, huckleberries. And I saw my mother lightening up, receiving the energy of that abundance. No, I did not try to pick every berry in the forest. <laughs> this is, yes, this is in our traditional way of living and being. You just take what you need. But I filled my heart with spiritual abundance. It was incredible. I was able to pass that abundance back to my mom, just the way she always did for me when I was growing up. And I also want to talk about humility. I think it's an important concept. It's an overlooked concept, especially in the Western world. It's a value for my people and many indigenous peoples who understand that we as humans are not the only and not the highest intelligence on this planet. It teaches us to treat other people, animals, plants, rocks, rivers, mountains with respect, love, 
and reverence. In our current westernized model of living, it's the individual accomplishment that is highly valued and people constantly have to compete with one another for recognition. We do a lot of self-promotion and individual success and achievements become the tool to get ahead in life. What humility taught me is that I still have a lot to learn, that staying in humble, practicing it on a daily basis, understanding that I'm not the only or the smartest person in a room, and that the brilliance is collective. In my culture, we learn that from early childhood. That's how my grandmother raised me, that we cannot boast, we cannot take credit for someone else, and how to harness the power of collective by uplifting other people. It would be fair to say that a leader in our cultures is made with the efforts, support, teachings, and aspirations of many. And if it were not for the many people, including our grandmothers, our entire families, our mentors, our teachers, friends, colleagues, who make impossible things possible on a daily basis, they would not be us as leaders. Humility is also accepting that I'm not perfect and learning how to embrace my imperfections and be tolerant, compassionate, and accepting of other people's imperfections as well. Understanding the human condition, understanding suffering, knowing our place on this beautiful and fragile planet, having our hearts broken, hurting, grieving, healing, and always, always having hope that we can overcome and thrive. It's all of it. This is why we're here. How can I be the best version of myself given the story I was born with and lived and what can I do with it? It's living the best way that I can, allowing life to happen to me, guided by my heart, caring for others, leaving behind something important after I'm long gone and that's how I try to live those values that came from my ancestors and my grandmother. And that's what the land has been teaching us all along. Galena, I can't think of a more perfect model for each of us to try to aspire to than what you just shared of trying to live into those values going forward, no matter what's happening out on the planet, no matter what might happen or not happen in the future. But it's it's the imperative of how are we going to be. One other thread, you alluded to it a little bit in some of what you were just speaking of, but when I was doing research for this interview, you've spoken of the need to support Indigenous women specifically as leaders now, uh, as alongside the brilliance that exists within Indigenous uh, people about the land where they live and have always lived if you would maybe talk a little bit about why are those two things so important as well as why are they so often overlooked or ignored by the dominant culture today? Mm. Yes. I think indigenous women are probably the most overlooked segments of society. If you think about it, only 0.4% of total global philanthropic giving goes 
towards indigenous peoples, right? And out of this 0.4%, only a small fraction of that goes to indigenous women. Mm-hmm. However, indigenous women play a crucial role. They are the holders of indigenous knowledge. They pass that knowledge to, on to another generation. They are the guardians of our land, our waters, our seeds, and the biodiversity of living things around us. When indigenous women are empowered and have the funding that they need to support their organizations, movements, community projects, it will directly benefit entire communities, all of our peoples. Indigenous women know their communities like nobody else. They are the ones who are in the the closest touch what's happening on the ground and the realities of our people. They know what works best for them. And they have the approaches, multiple approaches to different problems that they face that can lead to transformational change in our communities and lead to well-being. However, again, over and over I encounter stories where in the philanthropic world and among different organizations that indigenous women face multiple discriminations based on their gender, based on their ethnic origin, sometimes based on their disability, sometimes based on their location. So the issue is really multidimensional. I mentioned that I come from the matrilineal society with a long lineage of strong and powerful women. And when I came to cultural survival, I brought that to the team that we need to focus on indigenous women and youth. And this is why uh, when we published our new strategic plan, we developed and published our new strategic plan, we emphasized the focus on indigenous women and youth as the protagonists, as the caretakers, as the actors in our own life. No more we want to be called victims. No more we want to be called beneficiaries. Because the time for calling us that is over. We have moved the landscape, successfully moved that landscape from being called beneficiaries and victims to become the proactive change makers and actors in our stories, our own stories of life. So that's what I think is the most important thing that we would like to shift this narrative from naming us as victims to resorting to our wisdom and solutions, supporting indigenous women as the, uh, the ones who are bringing those solutions to the rest of the world. And uh, I want to emphasize and say again that we're not only carrying water or babies, we also carry millennia-old knowledge as guardians of our land and waters. And I think alongside that, really a, a dovetail question for you as we start to come near the end of our time together today is something that you mentioned at the Global Landscapes Forum that you attended in 2021. You were speaking passionately of the need to let your people protect your forests 
to basically just let your people protect your lands. And I was very moved by what you said, speaking directly to governments. You said, quote, leave us alone. We know what we're doing. We've been here for millennia. And I think that alongside what you just spoke of with indigenous women, that feels like going forward now, given all the crises and where we're at at this point in history and, and building on what you just shared with us. Can you talk a little bit more into that of, we know what we're doing, leave us alone. This is what the planet needs right now. This is what we need right now. Yes, I, th- I think this is very important to repeat that, that when we see the pictures of our beautiful planet from space, what do you see? We see just one blue planet, undivided and torn by borders. And I'm going to say something bold, that we're all indigenous to this planet. Unfortunately, of course, in the current geopolitical context and the cultural context, and I can't say that we're all indigenous peoples, but what I can say is that we're all indigenous to the planet. And as an indigenous person, yes, we have chosen the term indigenous peoples as a tool, as a strategy to elevate our issues on the international level and gain the recognition and the same level of equity with the general population. But again, we see the planet as our home that houses all of us. And if we do feel like we're doing that, seeing the planet as a whole, as our home, and we feel like we are all indigenous to this planet, then maybe we start treating her differently. Governments, in my mind, have served their function in one point of history, sort of as an evolutionary feature. But more and more we're witnessing their failure to meet the demands of the current world. For many indigenous nations, governments and nation states and their ideologies and rules and regulations and laws have superimposed their visions, their boundaries on our people. And there are many communities, indigenous communities, the same family members ended up on the other side of the borders. Take Inuit people split between Russia and the United States. Take Sami people split among Finland, Sweden, Norway, and Russia. What about people in Africa, like Maasai people, crossing the borders between Tanzania and Kenya? Because for them, that border does not exist. That's their land. And again, I want to emphasize that the governments need to leave indigenous peoples alone to do their job, to continue stewarding the remaining 80% of biological diversity that have been successfully stewarded for centuries. This is the only reason that we have that remaining biological diversity because indigenous peoples have been doing that since the times immemorial. If we don't do that, then I think our survival is at stake. It has been prophesied by many indigenous elders globally 
independent of each other, that indigenous peoples are going to lead the way through their indigenous knowledge, traditional knowledge, of the knowledge of that information, of that communication that we are receiving from the land itself. Galena, thank you so, so much. I am really, really moved by everything you just shared and particularly how you just left us with that. I can't think of a a better way to end our conversation. And uh, it's really an honor to have you on the podcast. And thank you again for taking time out of your very busy schedule. Even more so, thank you for all of your work that you're doing for all of us. Thank you for the opportunity to reach hearts and minds of people who will be listening to this podcast. Have you ever felt alone in the shadow of your home? Have you ever felt like you could fall and slip right through? Holding the Fire is hosted and produced by me, Dar Jamail, Melody Travers Allison, Asher Miller, and Rob Dietz. Theme music is Hold That Spirit by Ray Zaragoza. Transition music by Lila June Johnston. This is a program of the Post Carbon Institute, and you can learn more about this podcast along with other information on the great unraveling at resilience.org. The bird song you are listening to is the Siberian Blue Robin. Robins have beautiful songs, and this one is no exception. Thanks for listening to Holding the Fire, Indigenous Voices on the Great Unraveling. Please check out the next episode, where I speak with Celine Lim, a member of the Kayan tribe of Malaysia and the manager of the Save Rivers NGO.